I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Today's conversation is with a woman by the name of Wendy Gritter. I'm, I'm slowly becoming her new biggest fan. Not slowly, quickly becoming her new biggest fan. Sorry about that, Wendy. And you're going to really enjoy this conversation today, I think. It's fun. It's interesting. We have a few laughs. But we also talk about some pretty interesting things. We talk about our over-sexualized cultural and what it mean, uh, culture and what it means to be heteronormative. And we talk about sexuality in a really interesting way. Wendy works with an organization called New Direction uh, Ministries. And she is working within a faith-based community or faith-based communities. She's talking about things like human flourishing and she talks today about what it means to be the walking wounded uh, sexuality versus justice. What, what does it mean to have a principled pluralism? You're going to enjoy this talk. She's got a book by uh, the name of uh, Generous uh, Spaciousness. Check it out. Wendy Gritter, be there. 
Well, welcome to Face to Face, and we have, uh, I have no idea what number we're on, but I think we're around 96. We're, we're getting, maybe this will be the 100th interview. Uh, we've got a guest, Wendy Gritter, with us here today. Thanks for joining us today, Wendy. Well, it's great to be here. So we, uh, we're going to get into a fun, one of my favorite subjects. We're going to talk about sexuality. Don't and men think about it every four seconds or something like that? Is it like every that? four? Actually, I thought I broke that record years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, women have that really hard time even imagining that, like, but... <laughs> I Apparently, think, it's true. I bet they do. Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, you know, there's this great story about, uh, and I'm sure it's sort of a, a legend in some respects, and Malcolm Muggeridge, you know, at his 72nd or 3rd birthday said, wow, am I ever glad that's over with? <laughs> and it's just, you know, I mean, it's, I have no idea if that's true, but uh, I can sort of uh, appreciate that. Because you know what? Then I'm going to get a whole lot more done. Right? You know? It's You'd just, think, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember... Yeah. Uh, talking to a, an old missionary who had finally retired yeah. about the same age and I said you know what's what's the vision for your for your life now and he said to not be a dirty old man and I remember sort of being <laughs> shocked like I thought he was gonna you know yes do something great and spiritual yes write a new wonderful, series but... of biblical commentary yes something worthwhile but just well trying to avoid funny. that yeah oh that's funny well, it's a, certainly a topic that uh, I think I don't think just faith-based folk uh, struggle with, or or uh, uh, I think it's 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 a, it's can be a difficult issue. So before we though dig in, uh, yeah. and I'm only too willing and eager, tell me a little bit about what you do in the church and what that means. So you know, as I was sort of driving to our interview today, I was thinking about this whole idea of you know, just culture, culture-wide, faith-based, religious, you know, I mean, there's about four or five billion religious folk in the world, mm -hmm. but you have chosen to work with a certain group, uh, I think. Um, so tell me more about what you do. New Direction, you're the executive director. Yeah. Oh, hang on. little plug for Generous Spaciousness by Wendy Gritter. That's uh, her book, Responding to Gay Christians in the Church, is the subtitle, and it's uh, flying off the digital bookshelves as we speak. Indeed. Well, I would say that New Direction is open to anyone who is doing some spiritual searching. And usually it's LGBTQ folks who are recovering from some toxic religious experience, uh, whether they've been alienated by a religious family or turfed out of a religious institution, or just in terms of their own spiritual journey, trying to make sense of, can I be authentically who I am? and accept and embrace my sexuality as a part of my personhood and have an authentic faith, have an authentic spiritual journey. And so we cultivate communities where people can have those conversations, where they can build relationships, where they can be encouraged in that pursuit. And then we try to help religious institutions, whether that's churches or universities or organizations, to cultivate climates and environments and cultures really where those same kinds of conversations can happen and, and we call them generously spacious conversations. So, so are you working in, in Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or, or uh, you know Jewish communities as well or is it typically kind of evangelical conservative Christians? I would say that the communities that we cultivate are open to people of all faiths. They're predominantly Christian hmm. um, 
but we've had Muslim, Hindu, Sikh folks. I mean, it's not necessarily easy to find safe communities for LGBTQ folks in any religious community. Right. Um, but in terms of the organizational work we do, we're primarily in the in the Christian camp. Is there? Do you think there's a reason for that? I mean, maybe it's just the direction of New Direction, or is it a comment on, you know, where we are at in the Toronto area with respect to these issues in faith-based communities? I think it's a, a day of partnership and collaboration. And so uh, one of my colleagues was just at the conference for Gay-Straight Alliance students and their teacher facilitators uh, and met a really cool Muslim guy who's doing very similar work to what we're doing in the Muslim community. So why would we reinvent the wheel and try to you know, be something that is um, not our background We'd rather work with this guy and, and ensure that anyone who's seeking support and encouragement will have uh, access to community and friendship and support. Yeah, and there, I mean, it seems to me there's things to be learned from all communities about these issues. And I would think that typically most religious communities seem to be fairly conservative when it comes to these things. But that's clearly changing because of people like you and the work that you're doing and so on. But uh, I would also think that that each community is going to be at a different place. I mean, it's kind of a trite thing to say, but at the same time, it seems like to me that each sort of community's understanding of their creator mm, <laughs> is, sure. going to have an is going to have an impact on, on how they deal with their own sexuality. Well, as the general Canadian attitude, social attitudes towards LGBTQ people is increasingly positive, yet we have 40% of our homeless youth connected and identifying as LGBTQ. Hmm. I mean, it's an estimate, but it's pretty darn high if you think about prevalence being only 5 to 10% of the population. And it's, I think, fair to say that the majority of those kids who are now street-involved are either coming from faith-based homes or they're coming from newcomer families where they're coming from an ethnic context that is is not prepared to embrace sexual minority persons the way the Canadian culture does. And so there's this conflict. And, uh, and that means, you know, we have lots of work to do in our wonderfully diverse city and country. Are we, are we just uh, better at it than other cultures around the world? Or, or are we, is, is it part of the reason, uh, part of the reason for that, the, the diversity of the amount of new Canadians coming to Canada and so on, um, settling here? I would be hesitant to say we're better at it. Um, I think we've been forced to be nuanced because of the diversity in Canada. Uh, what's interesting, as I speak with a variety of, of families from different ethnic and cultural contexts, is that others, other cultures have a, a much richer sense of acceptance, but it's sort of, it, it's just sort of, par for the course, like it, it's not an issue, which in some ways then perpetuates a bit of a DADT, don't ask, don't tell, like we don't really talk about it, but we love people and accept people. And I think what happens in North America is that we, we have this bent towards authenticity, telling our stories, sometimes labeling, sometimes describing our experiences with high levels of, of candidness. And so in the North American context, it becomes about being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. And that changes the dynamics around acceptance and around integration into the life of a community. 
So we're sitting in uh, the Peel region. I believe mm-hmm. high school high school teachers are now on strike. They are, yes, um, as of yesterday. My wife Elizabeth is elementary. They're talking about it. I mean, it's it's happening. Now I know that the new curriculum has nothing really to do with the strike. But my wife yesterday, I believe, fifty percent of the students were not at school protesting a new curriculum coming into Ontario that is for them hypersexual. That is uh, dealing with issues that a lot of these parents think should be dealt with, you know, at high school level. We want to, mm-hmm. we don't, we just, you know, speaking of the don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. So, to, to, to what are your thoughts on that? You've got teenagers, you've got uh, kids who've grown up in this culture. You're working in a in a pretty um, diverse field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this a sign of the times? I mean, considering we're mm-hmm. bad, you know, the comment about being better at it, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of parents um, aren't even necessarily saying leave it for high school. They're say, saying leave it for the family, leave it for the home context, leave it for the parents to have these conversations. The reality is, though, that very few parents are having those conversations or are ill-equipped to have those conversations mm. in our cultural context. I think what's brilliant about the new curriculum is that it's very focused around respect, consent, agency, kids taking ownership of their own bodies. Uh, So it's not just, are we in a sexualized context and are we equipping these kids for sex? It's actually, how are we equipping these kids to uh, protect and honor their own worth and dignity when it comes to their bodies and what others might want to do to their bodies? Uh, Having proper names for body parts, being able to understand... Instead of your thing? (laughs) A mom I knew called uh, her son's penis a kangaroo, you know, and it's like, (laughs) okay, that's new for me. Yeah. Well, I spent years in construction, as you know, and that's a new one for me. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, but, um, you know, my, my 16 year old daughter was on my Facebook page where the curriculum came up and she wrote this little essay in the comments about why she felt this curriculum was so important. Um, You know, she and her peers are on YouTube every single day. Um, They are watching um, educators in the arena of sexuality, and they're saying, we need these tools for the kid whose parents are either absent or um, ashamed of sexuality. These kids need to have an equal level of information for their own protection and um, and sense of dignity within their peer groups. It seems to me that probably I don't want to. Uh, all sweeping generalizations are wrong, and you know, including mm-hmm. this one. But w- there's probably a lot of parents who don't really know what the curriculum is all about, and they're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon and saying, "Oh, my friends are upset about it. My church is upset about it. My my mother's upset about it. Therefore, I should be too." Um, For those who have read it, who actually have peeled back some of the layers, do you think some of their reaction has to do with, uh, you know, their own sense of shame or guilt or fear at the risk of, you know, pointing some fingers? Or, you know, I mean, you got to say, well, they're parents too. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they get to make those decisions if they really want. They get to protest, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Anyway, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. People are autonomous and free to have their own reactions. I'm I'm not so sure whether it's their own shame, but certainly I think sometimes as parents we want to protect our kids. We want our kids to to somehow have an innocence, this sort of caricature of innocence. You know, one in four eight-year-olds has been exposed to explicit sexuality on the internet. Like that is the reality we live in, and so. 
we might want to think that we can somehow put our kids in a bubble, just as a natural parenting desire for our kids to not be hurt or tarnished or jaded. Uh, but I think the curriculum is a very realistic one. It looks at our current context and reality and says our kids need some source of information that is sound, that is going to help them to make wise decisions and choices. So let's, I'm, I'm sure, you know, having a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, I mean, I'm, we're having these conversations as a family about kind of what's next and how to introduce sexuality topics around. Mm -hmm. We've had some great conversations, um, you know, music, lyrics, all these things. And you kind of, there's this, you know, I'm going to be 50 in the fall, so already I'm becoming a bit more of a nostalgic old fart than I used to be, <laughs> thinking, well, gee, you know, I grew up with Van Halen, but holy cow, it's, uh, they were, you know, they weren't so in your face like they are today lyrically and so mm -hmm. on, right? You get mm -hmm. into this, this sort of this pattern. Tell me about the slippery slope. Having, having you know, studied philosophy for years and fallacies and so on, slippery slope comes up quite often, and people kind of toss it out there, uh, in, especially when we're talking about sexuality. Right. Indeed, What's yeah. next? What the hell right. is next, Wendy? Right. Where yeah. are we going? Well, if we're going to do this, well, then what about this? Isn't that the next thing? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So two things. What are your thoughts on that? And then secondly, are, is there anything that kind of scares you about uh, sexuality? <laughs> yeah, I think the slippery slope as a concept somehow presumes that if we don't talk about things, less less damage will happen than if we do right. talk Good. about things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a complete fallacy. Uh, secrets breed toxicity. Uh, secrets are the fertilizer for shame. Uh, secrets uh, cover up abuse and uh, injustice. And so the idea that we would have open conversation about what humanizes us, about how to extend worth and dignity and respect to all human beings, even those who experience gender and sexuality differently than the majority, is, I think, uh, an opportunity for us to actually reclaim a sense of justice and dignity in the arena of sexuality. Um, we, uh, we are, I think, blissfully ignorant of the ways that we have been socialized to feel disgust about that which is other. The problem is, as Desmond Tutu said, if I diminish you, I diminish myself. We are interconnected as human beings. And if we, if we do not create environments of justice for all human beings to be in intimate, loving relationships that are uh, protected and given value, uh, in our society, then we all lose. And so the, the notion that if we have this conversation about human dignity and respect, it's going to lead to people marrying their dog, you know, is, I think, intentionally missing the heart of what the conversation is about. It's not just a conversation about more permissiveness. It's actually a conversation about what value do we have as human beings and how can we honor that in one another across our differences? That means we need to sp make space and make room for those with differing religious convictions, but it also means we need to make room and space for those whose experience of gender and sexuality is different. We need a principled pluralism that doesn't just demand everyone think like me or you're out, 
but actually says, if I don't honor others who are different than I am, we all lose. Is this conversation about justice for you then? It's really, really not, has, it really doesn't have anything to do with sexuality in some regard. It's almost at a higher or lower level, more foundational than that. Because if you get the justice thing right, if you get the universal declaration right, in a sense that all human beings are born equal in, in dignity and rights, then doesn't some of this other stuff go away to some degree? It becomes footnotes then? <laughs> well, what I think we are lacking is a robust vision of relational justice that people can really dig their teeth into. Sometimes justice seems like this faraway concept that's so overwhelming because we see so much crap in the world, we just don't know where to begin. Uh, I think if we understand justice to be, I'm going to participate with others to dismantle the barriers that are preventing them from flourishing. If we're all flourishing, there's going to be less need for the situation we see in Baltimore today. If black youths were not being picked up by cops significantly more often than their white counterparts, if there was uh, flourishing in the arena of jobs and uh, the resources, the, the practical physical resources that we need, we wouldn't be seeing some of the violence and uh, some of the um, sort of the, the out without boundaries kind of behavior that we lament. Uh, and so I think absolutely, if we can understand what the vision of human flourishing is, then there's still going to be, you know, deviance and, and difficulty to address, but we'll be much more equipped to address it. We'll be addressing it from a, a place of something to offer rather than a place of fear and a place of um, this is a problem to fix and get rid of, or th this is, you know, this is my sister, this is my brother, and together we're going to work towards a more equitable solution that, that blesses all of us. A lot of people say we live in a, a hyper or an over-sexualized culture. You know, the uh, lifestyle advertising, film, um, magazines, media basically in general, the ubiquity of the image, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's probably true. Um, you know, how, I forget how many images we, you and I see a day because of the internet and so on and driving along the highway. If Let's just, just assume that is true. I'm happy to hear what you have to say about that. But I don't know that were well sexualized or mm. in, in a healthy way. So we might be over sexualized to some degree when it covers with respect to images, but I don't, I don't, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this. I don't go to a lot of dinner parties where, you know, sex becomes a topic. And mm. I mean, uh, and maybe we need to be more intentional about that. I don't know. And I, I, I kind of get, you know, there's certain sort of the notions of saving face and being mm. polite and all that stuff. But holy cow, I mean, part of the problem is I think we think we have time. Mm. And most of the time we don't. And, and it's not, well, geez, you know, we'll talk about this stuff in a couple of weeks or maybe at the next dinner party. Mm. And isn't this the kind of stuff that makes us human? And I know mm. that's part of my maybe philosophical bent coming mm. out and most people don't want anything to do with it. But on some, you know, I joke about sex, religion, politics, and death. Those are the four things we need to talk about more. Not whether what the... the what was on television last night or that we watched on YouTube or the hockey game. Fine. Talk about all those things too. Right? So there's a sense in which we're hypersexualized everywhere around us, but it's actually done us a disservice mm -hmm. because it's not allowed us to really peel back the layers, ironically, paradoxically. Mm. Well, there's no question that there's a great sense of energy that comes with sex. 
Um, and so if we are a, a culture... I haven't experienced that. No, hey. <laughs> There's this little blue pill I'll, that's, that's I'll tell right. you about I've after the about, podcast. <clears throat> Where we, our attention span is has become minuscule because things are happening so rapidly. And so there's this harnessing of a certain amount of energy in advertising particularly that is going to spark something, that catches something in our short attention span. And so it's used and it's overused. What, what is disastrous to us as a people, though, is that it is utilitarian. It is objectifying. It, it is not inherently humanizing to any of us. It's trying to harness an energy for a, a means to the end. And the end is consumerist. The end is, you know, individualist, that we're in our little space alone, outside of community, outside of relationship. What humanizes us is the time it takes to build rapport, to build trust, to build intimacy, to be together. Uh, and so you're quite right. I think there are tremendous taboos that still exist. So it, it is this irony that we have... Um, almost an explicitness that's part of our everyday reality. And yet, we don't talk about sex at the dinner party, even though three of the couples out of five haven't been having any sex and are desperately hurting and desperately mm -hmm. alone mm -hmm. in their marriage that's hanging on by a thread. We don't have that conversation because we're still ashamed. There are still taboos. There's still an uncertainty and an insecurity. And... That's because the sexuality that we're bombarded with doesn't humanize us. It doesn't touch our humanity. And that's where we're desperate to have the conversation. Well, there's a consumeristic edge to it, at the risk of sounding a little too Marxist, I suppose, in some regards. But it's about, again, I don't know, I, I'm going to blame self-interest a little bit and say it has to do with sex really is about the mechanics of feeling better. And so I'll, uh, and in the moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take from you because that's what this transaction is all about it's not a it's not necessarily a relational thing it's 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 there for my benefit and so you've got this friends like approach to sexuality uh, which is I know holy cow I've dated myself really haven't I just by pulling that I'm sure there's another I don't watch a lot of TV these days so but but you know yeah. friends that old sitcom yes because a whole bunch of people that went over their heads what friends, yeah, friends friends with what, benefits what's he, yeah what's he talking about yeah was that that <laughs> film a few years ago but the whole idea is that there's this to me there's this within this hypersexualized culture of, of sexuality there's this casualness mm -hmm. that I think also ironically can be kind of dehumanizing as well depending on your starting point it seems to me so if you start with the other if you start with this we're in this together this is about building stronger relationships and as you say trust and being together which is a wonderful phrase i think you've got a a, a better you're gonna you're gonna ask better questions and i think you're going to um it's gonna say uh, behave yourself, but yeah. that's, well, that's too moralistic. It, I don't a, mean that in that sense. It's about compartmentalization, right? So we compartmentalize uh, an experience of desire and release as separate from the heart. The problem is that either our heart goes dead and we just don't really feel, and so the compartmentalized orgasm is fun and good and we don't allow ourselves to feel the brokenness of disconnection, or we're, we're the walking wounded who no longer have a capacity to trust, who no longer feel safe 
who who aren't able to commit over the long haul because we're going to hurt you before you hurt us. Um, these are the, the ramifications of this kind of reductionism, but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about that pain. We just get a better divorce lawyer. I remember years ago being in a, in a conversation with somebody, or maybe I wasn't, I was probably too young, but standing on the outside of it. And there was a grandson who was not being validated for X or Y, and I don't know what it was. And the reason is that if we validate him too much, he's going to become this egomaniacal nut job, basically. Mm. It's a horrible paraphrase. Yeah, he'll so, get too big for his britches. Right. Now I'm dating and, myself. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think I sort of, I grew up in that culture mm -hmm. as well. And I wonder, and, and now today it seems like the pendulum has swung completely the other way. Mm -hmm. So we see this really crummy drawing by somebody, some kid with the crayons and go, wow, that's a good for good job, right? Mm -hmm. I actually think the pendulum over there is way better mm -hmm. than on the other mm -hmm. side. Um, but I wonder to what degree we've uh, viewed sexuality in the same way. Geez, let's not talk about that. Let's just sweep this under the carpet, better under the carpet than out in my face. Mm -hmm. Because, wow, I bet we're, we're back to the slippery slope again, right? This idea that, oh, geez, if we talk about this too much, oh, man, what are the implications? Mm -hmm. And we don't think trust. And we don't think rapport. I mean, I just, I guess what I find a little hard for me to come to terms with is for something that's so supposedly, and believe me, I'm here, profoundly human, mm -hmm. we have such a hell of a time with. Like, what's going on? Well, it was interesting, uh, your image of the pendulum right away brought me to the moment of rites of passage. You know, so the kid gets taken out into the forest and he's left overnight. Right, right. So there is both this incredible empowerment and risk. And on one hand, we either, um, you know, are so afraid of empowerment that we leave a, a kid bereft. Or on the other hand, we're so afraid of risk that they they don't have the chops to face their own sense of entitlement. And and whether that's in the arena of sexuality or just coming of age or being able to be res a responsible citizen, we, we have a really hard time in that paradoxical place of tension where it's both empowerment and risk because people get hurt, it's hard, it's painful, it's tiring, it takes time of which is you know the most sought after commodity. I think people just don't have time. They're, they're busy running here and there and doing yeah. many, many activities, but, but don't take the time to really understand what is it to be human for myself and then for those that I have some degree of influence in connection with. So you work primarily, back to sort of come back this, to, 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 to not finish the circle, but to bring it back a little bit in this whole faith-based community, you work primarily, it seems, within the sort of the, the evangelical church. What's, what, what, what kind of pushback are you getting today about, you know, having authentic conversations about sexuality in the church, about welcoming in the, the, the very communities that have been pushed out for so many years? Um, and then why bother? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's still tremendous um, pull between a call to justice and a call to purity, a call to um, living a life of freedom marked by virtue and character, 
or a life of obedience and rule keeping. So that's a huge um, tension uh, that for we, you, for you personally, well, or you mean for the, no, the groups that you seem to be working with? <laughs> no, I've just I've just gotten off the treadmill entirely. But right. but certainly those who are living with that tension will tend to see us too far to the left, too permissive, and particularly in traditionally believing or evangelical communities, that pull to obedience, to rule keeping is very strong, holiness, purity. I think that another huge tension is the question of authority. Where do we find our authority? If, if we're being challenged on a literalistic reading of our sacred text, then what is authoritative? Mm -hmm. um, and in a Christian context, there can be, um, I think, a tension between Scripture as our sacred text and this notion of the Spirit. You know, the Spirit blows where it will. The Spirit is this, this power that isn't easily put in a box or controlled or contained. And so when we, for instance, challenge a parent or a clergy person that they might need to entrust a given individual, an, an LGBTQ person, to the Spirit to own, clarify, and live in alignment with the values and beliefs that they wrestle and grapple with and define for themselves. Um, right away, there's a sense of, oh, then we'll just do what's right in our own eyes, which is a quote from one of the books, Judges, where it was problematic because people just did whatever they wanted to. So these are some of the tensions. Where's our authority? You know, how is it that we're supposed to live as human beings who have a commitment to a, a system of faith? Um, and, you know, I think the human nature in religion is to try to somehow, it's fundamental to earn, to, to make sure that we're deserving, to somehow say, you know, we've done enough. And for many Christian people, there's this, you know, lurking idea of grace and gift and freedom and love. And it's, and it's attractive, perhaps, but it seems too good to be true. Why can't, why can't Christians, why can't the church just spend more time being together, building trust, building rapport? Why the heck do they have to get it right all the time? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Jesus said, the summary of all this stuff is to love God and love your neighbor. And somehow that just, we seem to need to complicate that. Well, this polarization, you know, I mean, and it's not just the church. I mean, it's, it's scientists, it's, it's philosophers, it's, it's all the liberal arts, frankly. We want to polarize it. We want to, it's right, it's wrong, it's in, it's out, it's this way, it's that way. And as a, as a, a teacher at uh, Humber College in international development, I mean, students do not like the lack of precision when it sure. comes to what sustainable development actually means. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be participatory? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be just from a gender perspective? You know, what does it mean to see the world through a gender lens? And they want to go online to Wikipedia. They want to go to the Funkin' Wagnall, the dictionary, and get the, give me the answer. What's on the test? I want a good mark. It's not about rapport and trust and relationship. And it's, it's, it's a profound irony, a frustration for me as a teacher, and also a real challenge. I'm not saying every student's that way. Sure, maybe, sure. But, but we certainly have be... an intrinsic reward system 
What is rewarded? Well, certainty is rewarded. The right answer is rewarded. The winner of the argument is rewarded. Um, and, you know, many people of faith are trying to recover a sense of paradox and mystery, a humility that acknowledges that this is too too vast for us to contain in our answer box. But post-enlightenment, you know, we're, we're driven to have the absolute right, truthful answer. Um, and I think in international development or, or in the arena of sexuality, the complexity overwhelms us. And nobody wants to sit with that emotional sense of helplessness. And so we are driven to find what will fix this problem, which ultimately is just about us feeling better sometimes. It really is. You know, wouldn't it, you know, Scott Peck, uh, no relation, Scott Peck says in uh, Road Less Traveled that the sin in the Garden of Eden was laziness. <laughs> it was laziness. You know, I mean, whether or not you believe the story or not, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting observation. They didn't go deep enough. They didn't ask enough questions. Yeah. And is that kind of what we're suffering from here? This whole, all of us sweeping things under the carpet. Jeez, the curriculum, holy mackerel, don't want to talk about that. That's just too hard. It's just too hard. Kathleen Norris is a, a writer uh, and has written a book called Acedia and Me. And we've perhaps heard of the seven deadly sins, but Kathleen would say that actually before those were formed into these concrete actions. It was it was the deadly thoughts. It, w it was the things that mire us up. And acedia was one of them. And it was this sort of place of lethargy, this place of apathy, this place of, uh, you know, it would happen to the monk in the afternoon when they were supposed to pray and they were just like, screw it. I'm hungry. I'm, yeah. I'm, I want sex. I, I want these these escapes from the the challenge of being contemplative being present to what is happening right now to my own humanity to the humanity of others to the reality in the world to listening intently for what my small but significant part might be and then be faithful to do it we want something bigger we want something grander we want something more immediate we want something more intense uh, you know that is the human heart the New Testament says that divorce is wrong. Mm. Um, I don't want to get into a moralistic debate here with you, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of this because I think it's deeply connected. So, you know, Dante certainly would say that divorce is wrong, and I think he's got a pretty special place in hell for me, <laughs> actually. Uh, oh, yeah. and I'm a magician as well, so they were condemned oh. in the book of Leviticus. So, I'm by, by the way, I'm being stoned today at 2.05 p.m. Ah. if you want to come to the stoning. Yeah, it's happening at the... Uh, Civic Center in Mississauga. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I'm screwed, basically, is what I'm yeah. saying. Do you have a tattoo? You know what? I don't. <laughs> well, get Victoria on that, would you? <laughs> will not let me get my daughter seven. I can't grow any hair, and I'm not allowed to get tattoos. And no earrings, no piercings. Oh, so I've wow. joked with her. I joked with her the other day. I had a nipple ring, and that didn't go over too well. Sweetie, where do you see my name? Anyway, so I guess my point... So if it's a right and wrong thing, if it's polarized, well... I mean, even if I was this moralistic sort of uh, uh, anti-gay activist, mm. how can I say anything as a any kind of believer if I've 
stepped so far already outside of the moral code, mm -hmm. right? And I guess it's that whole literal, I mean, you, you, you commented about interpretation yeah. earlier and so on, authority. It's, we're back to authority and being children of the Enlightenment. Now what the heck do we do? Yeah, yeah. And again, it is that push and pull between justice and purity. And if we choose the purity route, then we have to do these weird uh, sort of religious gymnastics, I call them, to find these crazy exceptions. And so one denomination you know, agonized over the fact that the rate of divorce was so high that if they weren't allowing people who were divorced and remarried, like the churches would be empty. <laughs> and so, so they rationalized it this way. As long as a couple repents the first time they have sex, then the rest of the times they have sex, it's not adultery. Because divorce and remarriage was seen as adulterous unless there were these right. certain conditions. Now, doesn't that just seem ridiculous to you? But if you choose the rule-keeping track, right. you, you got to find these weird exceptions to try to make things okay. If you are on the, the justice track, so to speak, and you say, in what ways was divorce perpetuating injustice in a patriarchal con context where misogyny was rampant and women who were rejected, abandoned, divorced were left bereft? probably needing to um, resort to prostitution to be able to just survive. What does justice mean for a sexual minority person in a reality today of our understanding, limited as it may be, around sexual orientation, around um, just, you know, intrinsic difference? What does justice look like? You know, it, is a, a relational God really asking an entire population of people to abstain from sexual relationship? Not just sex, but sexual relationships. Um, what does that look like in terms of justice? Well, it's a very different question, and your thought develops very differently than sort of the strange, convoluted rule-keeping that needs to try to find exceptions that really don't make very much sense. Um, and so we poo-poo when people say, well, do you eat shellfish and do you wear polyester? Because those are things that are contraindicated in Leviticus, do, as is you know, men who have sex with men. Um, and so those who are on the rule-keeping track would say, well, come on, that's not a big deal. But this is a big deal. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it doesn't it's not cohesive. It, they it doesn't had the cohere. Seafood fettuccine special last night just before. Well, it's home. shrimp fest at Red Lobster. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Go out and get it now yeah, while it's while yeah. it's hot. I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a crab guy myself. What does yeah. it mean to be heteronormative? Yeah, you view the world through the lens of male-female coupling is the way to be human and the way to exist as family units, and so. Um, yeah, but isn't, it, isn't, that, isn't that the right way? Well, it is the majority experience. But does the majority make it the only right way mm. to be human? Mm. Does, for instance, the creation account in Genesis that talks about male and female, is that descriptive of the majority experience or prescriptive for every human being? Well... The truth is, you know, it doesn't actually say in the creation account whether it's descriptive or prescriptive. And so you can fight about that till the cows come home. But 
you might need to live with some tension and some paradox and some mystery and different people are going to grab hold of, of a different conclusion for different reasons. So one of the things we do in generous spaciousness is say, look, we got to find a way to be human together because if we're going to hold our breath until we get this resolved, it's not going to happen, right? For, for the host of reasons in which we think about things differently, we develop our thought differently, we develop our conclusions differently, we have to find a way to be able to humanize one another, to live at peace with one another, and work as much as we can towards justice in this imperfect and incomplete reality. Do, do, you know, in some ways, and I love the, I think I love this, do we need to just listen more? Do we need to become better listeners? Well, it's a huge, huge factor in, in the process. Um, and listening, I would Because it presupposes a certain humility, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, yeah. it, it says I don't that, have the answers. I don't yeah. know. Tell me your yeah, story. Well, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. Right. I don't think I'm wrong, but I could be wrong. Or even just the sense of, I will temporarily suspend my strong opinions. I'll temporarily suspend my assumptions so that I can enter into your experience anticipating that I might learn more about this reality than I previously knew. And that takes extraordinarily, extraordinary humility. It's a huge risk because what if I change my mind? Heaven forbid. Um, and so it actually takes a tremendous amount of courage. People, people often talk about my work as being wishy-washy or, mm. or a compromise mm. because mm. I'm trying to bring people who are different together in a place of dialogue where we really can humanize one another. And I'm like, wishy-washy, obviously you haven't tried it because right, it's, right. it's extraordinarily challenging and will cost you, you know, emotionally and spiritually and just in terms of your own sense of security and certainty, it will cost you everything yeah. to humanize the one with whom you disagree. Are you, uh, we got to wrap up here in a couple of minutes, but would you say you're a hopeful person? I mean, are things changing? I mean, I, I mean, I'm all about social change. I'm all about incremental steps and so on and making the world a better place through the little things. And I do think things are changing from an international perspective, from a social justice perspective and so on. Lots of differences, lots of changes, pros and cons. Do you get out of bed with a smile in the morning? Or, well, or, or do you put up your boots? <laughs> or do you, do you put on your boxing gloves? Yeah, um... Well, we, don't, we won't talk about my personal emotional state of mind. Um, <laughs> There's medication for that, Wendy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm on them. But um, I would say that I'm very intentional to cultivate hopefulness. And it isn't dependent on whether things are changing or not. So it's not situational. Well, the deal is you cannot be part of changing things unless you cultivate hopefulness. Mm. Like if, if you're a pessimist that says, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, then get the hell out of advocacy work because you're yeah. just a downer to everybody well, else. Well, get out of my way. That's what I say. That's like my <laughs> new t-shirt. Get out yeah, of my way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and so I'm very intentional to say, um, you know, and I'm a person of faith. So if I say we're, we're created in the image of a, of a power greater than us that created the world to be good, uh, and because of that, we have inherent worth and dignity then how can I not be hopeful that we can find one another in that, that we can humanize one another? And, and I think that, that will radically change things around if we actually look at the person we are most different from mm. and see in them a person worthy of dignity There's and respect. There's something about similarity through difference, and I'm not mm -hmm. just trying to be clever, but there really is. 
we are all the same, but so radically different in our own understanding, the lens, the experience, the stories, what we bring to the conversation. And it seems that history has shown we're all scared out of our minds because of that. And yet, hopefully, the way forward is going to be saying, hang on, I can validate that. I can affirm that. I can embrace that. I can include that and, and, and go from there. Well, those of us in the West, with all of our wealth and privilege, um, think we have the answers for everything. And, and it's difficult to live as a humble people. We're, again, we're wired to set up our accomplishments, which inevitably breeds pride and arrogance. But I am, I am constantly humbled by examples like Rwanda. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people decimated by genocide who enact reconciliation by humanizing one another that has revolutionized and transformed a nation that was just completely done. You know, if, if we don't have the humility to see what can happen when we humanize one another, um, we are then part of the problem, not part of the solution. Hey, listen, we have a right to be arrogant. This is a culture that's created craft dinner, Big Brother, and uh, what's one more we can toss in there? Microwaves. There you go. I mean, come on. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's something to be proud of, isn't it, Wendy? <laughs> uh, Wendy Gritter uh, joining us today. Her book, Generous Spaciousness, uh, Responding to Gay Christians in the Church. It's available at your bookstores online. And uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. I mean, talk about uh, you know barely scratching the surface, but really Indeed. enjoyed having Indeed. a good chat today. Fun time.